All right, if you guys would uh, open up to Luke 15, we're going to uh, read verses 1 through 10. While you're getting there, I want to just remind of a couple things. Um, be in prayer for tonight. We're having a greet, uh, uh, meeting here at the church tonight with some international students, the SIT ministry. So there'll be a lot of um, people from different cultures and uh, who are not believers here, and the gospel will be shared kind of along with the traditions of Halloween. So be praying for that time. And then two weeks from now, Sunday the 12th, we have a family meeting, uh, which is our um, a big one of our bigger meetings that we have from 4.30 to 7.30, and we'll be going over the proposed budget for 2018 and um, putting forward... Uh, uh, a, a labman as an elder, so it'll be a, an important meeting, so make sure you've got time, got that blocked out to be here. So I'm going to read um, all 10 verses, and then we're going to talk through what the Lord has to say to us here. So in verse, picking up in verse 1, um, this is the parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you save sinners. Thank you that you seek those who are lost, that you don't, when we show up, check and say, nope, not good enough, come back, try again that we are, we are running from you, we have our backs to you, and you come and you chase us down, and you put us on your shoulders, and you bring us into your family, and you, you have joy, joy enough to have a party over adopting a new member into your family. So I pray this morning, Lord, that the text will come alive. Pray, Lord, as I am weak and broken and full of sin and mess, that you will speak through me, that you will be glorified. And I pray, Lord, that this time would be fruitful. And I just thank you for... This body, thank you for those that are here that are um, that are regular attenders, members that have that have encouraged me so much through the years, prayed for me, spoken life into my life. Thank you for visitors, Lord. We know that you are sovereignly working in all of our lives, Lord, in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend, much less see. So I pray this time this morning, Lord, would be glorifying to you, would be fruitful. In your name, Amen. So this is Luke fifteen. If you're new with us, uh, we started in Luke 1, and we've just been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in Luke 15. 
Um, Lord willing, if all goes according to plan, we'll probably finish Luke at Easter um, with the Passion kind of at the end of the book. So we're in Luke 15, and this is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. So next week, we're going to hear the, the second half of this chapter, and it's on the prodigal son, which is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. I mean, people who aren't even Christians know the story of the prodigal son. It's in part of our common language. You'll hear people say things like, the prodigal son has returned, similar to what they'll say, you know, he's as mean as a snake or busy as a bee. It's just kind of this language that's incorporated in our society. And so when you say the prodigal son has returned, everybody knows you mean a wayward person has come back. And so Jesus is giving us three stories here, two where he's seeking something that's lost, and then one where he's welcoming back uh, somebody who's been lost, and, and, a, and a father welcomes the son back into his family. And we're meant to see here, um, Jesus issues this as a strong rebuke to the Pharisees who thought that getting to God was all about rule keeping and doing the right things and excluding people. And so um, I think it's fitting that we're studying this chapter in light of uh, Tuesday. So Tuesday is October 31st. It's Halloween. So all of you, I'm sure, will be dressed up as superheroes and Star Wars and princesses, Pastor Travis, and, you know, all kinds of things. Um, But it's also the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, which is viewed widely as the start of the Reformation. So this is a, a historic anniversary of sorts where the whole course of Christian history changed by kind of this beginning of Martin Luther. Now, God was working in some of his contemporaries as well. It wasn't him solely, but he's viewed as kind of the the father of the Reformation, of of starting the conversation. And I think it's it's really fitting that we're studying that because a big part of what was recovered from um, the Reformation was the priesthood of every believer and how important all people are to God and not just the clergy. So before the Reformation, they were really viewed as two orders of society, normal people and then a higher order are the true servants of God. So the, the priests and the clergy were viewed as, as more important, more precious in God's sight. And Luther really challenged a lot of these beliefs and, and helped restore through um, a lot of his teaching and writing, um, certainly John Calvin, there were others that contributed to this the priesthood of the believer, and the importance of every occupation. And so Luther's famous for saying that the dairymaid, which was not a high position in that time, because you're spending your day underneath a cow milking, right? They didn't have automatic milkers then. They had actual people that you hired to milk. So the dairymaid can milk cows to the glory of God. So Luther's pushing this idea that you don't have to go through a, through a priest or through a pastor to get to God. That's not your main avenue. That what the work of Christ opened up God's heart to all people. And so there was this this big idea where you had to go through, everything ran through the church or ran through a priest, and that was the only way that you could get to God. And so the, uh, in fact, a lot of people leading up to the Reformation, and even after the Reformation for a while, thought the most holy thing that you could do was withdraw yourself from society and live a silent life in a monastery, spending all your time thinking about the Lord. That was viewed as the most holy thing that you could do. And Luther, who was a former monk, 
rejected that idea. And the woman that he married was a former nun, rejected that idea that that's not how we serve the Lord, but we need to engage society with the gospel, that God wants to seek and save the lost, and he wants to use all of his people to do that. And so these two passages, I think it's fitting how God sovereignly ordained that, that this is what we're studying in light of the Reformation, and then on the tail end of the Reformation, we'll study the prodigal son. Because God does seek and save the lost, and he uses his children to do that. So in, these, in Luke 15, again, we're gonna, we looked at two today. We'll look at one next week. We get three stories of God seeking and saving things that are lost. Um, and so, you know, you may feel like you're trapped in life and that you're beyond kind of rescue or beyond hope or that God can't get to you. But God will seek you. He will chase you down. He will rescue you as his son. That's what we're meant to see here is that he's a God that pursues He's not a God that's aloof or a God that um, is cold or distant, but he's a God that adopts us into his family. And so that should provide us great hope as we're looking through this text. So I want to give you an outline for today. We're going to hit um, three things. We're going to talk about the parable of the lost sheep in detail. We're going to talk about the parable of the lost coin. And then I want to make sure we hit three takeaways from these parables and what God wants us to see. So In verse 1, it opens with kind of setting the scene. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So, him is Jesus. So, these tax collectors and sinners, they wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted to be with Jesus. And these people were viewed as the biggest sinners in society. Okay, so these these were viewed um, as people of low moral character, um, people of kind of low position, or, you know, people that you didn't want to be associated with. And so the, the idea we're, we're seeing here is these people want to be with Jesus. There's this language that says they were drawing near to hear him. So not only did they want to be with Jesus, but they were interested in what Jesus had to say to them. So there's this kind of genuine, heartfelt, we want to understand what you have to say. And Jesus does a good job of letting us know that he's here to save the sick. And we're all spiritually sick. But a lot of times in Jesus's ministry, those who were viewed as kind of the lowest of the low realized that they were sick and they were much closer to finding their way to God than those who thought they were close to the heart of God. So in verse two, we get those who think they're close to the heart of God. It says, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So you can almost get this kind of this kind of seething, you know, animosity that he receives them and he eats with them. Both of these things are bad. And the tax, I mean, the the Pharisees pretty much looked down on everyone because they were all about keeping the law. And so, you know, they were really bothered that Jesus would spend any of these time, any of his time with these tax collectors and sinners. And just to set the stage, the tax collectors, we've talked about this in, in Luke, these people were people of wealth and position, but they were hated. They were despised by everybody. And it's not just because they collected taxes. I mean, people in, I think, throughout history, nobody has enjoyed paying taxes. Even today, you know, people will are averse to paying taxes. Nobody's excited when you get a letter from the IRS. Um, or when you get to file your taxes, it's not like everybody really looks forward to tax day. Um, so there's a kind of a natural aversion to wanting to pay taxes anyway, But it's especially 
here because there's some patriotism involved. So the Jewish people viewed themselves as a sovereign nation, and they hated that the Romans were ruling over them. And so the tax collectors were viewed as traitors because they were not only collecting taxes, but they were collecting taxes from Jewish people and then passing it along to the Roman Empire, which they view, which Jewish people viewed as enemies. They hated them. So imagine today America as a sovereign nation. If we were to be invaded, say, by a country like Russia, and, and they were to take over, um, Alex is smiling, um, if they were to take over, <laughs> or Belarus, if they were to take over, and, and now we're all living under their rule, and, and then there are people who are quick to volunteer that are like, oh, yeah, I'll take a position in the new empire uh, so I can promote myself and, and better, you know, give myself a, a position of prestige and power and money. We, they would be hard to love those people because they would be selling out the rest of us so that they could selfishly have a good position in this new kingdom. And so it would be hard to not feel like, hey, you've betrayed your countrymen here just for your own good. So the, the tax collectors were hated for that reason because there was a lot of Jewish patriotism, but they were also hated because they were viewed as thieves. And it's commonly known in that time that tax collectors would go around and they would collect whatever the, the given rate of taxes was plus extra. And so they would give what Rome demanded to Rome and they would keep the extra for themselves. That's how they became wealthy. That's how they, they were able to build their positions of power. And so people knew this. So you couldn't, nobody could really challenge them because their position of power, but people hated them for this reason because they knew part of the reason they were rich is they were robbing and extorting their fellow countrymen. And so we see this in the story of Zacchaeus right after Zacchaeus breaks and he, he confesses faith in Jesus and he realizes some of the terrible things that he's done. He, the, the Holy Spirit working in his heart, he wants to basically make amends. And so he tells Jesus, look, if anybody I've stolen from, I'll repay them four times what I took. And so this anecdote helps kind of reaffirm what we know to be true about tax collectors, that they were, that they were greedy, that they were thieves, that they stole from people. Now the word sinners here is a word that, um, that, that in the original language is a public, it's, the word is publicans. And it's meant to be just this kind of catch-all it's not political, not Republicans, just publicans. It's meant to be this kind of catch-all for um, just people of bad reputation, okay? So this, you didn't want to be in that crowd. Um, and so these were people who, they didn't even try to put up the facade that they were going to keep the law. So they didn't even try to pretend that they were going to keep all the rules or make everybody think that they were keeping all the rules. These were people that just basically said, you know what? Um, maybe it's right, but it's too hard. I'm just going to kind of live my life and do the things that I want to do. So some of these people were, uh, you know, people of kind of low moral standing, people who were not viewed in high regard and how they lived their lives or the things that they did. Um, the most unfortunate thing, though, was these people were much, much closer to God's heart. So they were much closer to realizing that their lives were poisoned by sin and that it was leading them to death. And they were much closer to realizing how sick they were. And the Pharisees here, they think they have the moral high ground on Jesus, which is why you see them say, this man receives sinners, and he even eats with them. They were so concerned with keeping the law that they didn't even want to spend any time with anybody that they viewed as inferior 
or anybody who might contaminate them or make them unholy. So they didn't even want to, not only did they want to keep the law and condemn people who didn't keep the law, they didn't want to spend any of their time and energy with people who were not law keepers. So they were, there is very much a kind of elitist, exclusionary group. And so they thought they were much closer to God's heart than these tax collectors and sinners. They thought they were on God's mission. And unfortunately, they were so far off that not only did they realize God's heart is to seek and save those who are lost, to seek and save those who are sick, they didn't even realize the one who was there, who was going to provide the redemption, was standing right in front of them. And so instead of realizing who he was and realizing the power of what he was about to do to transform all of humanity by opening salvation to everyone, they heap condemnation on him. They cannot be further. They think they're working in the name of God, and they cannot be further from the heart of God. And so they want to distance themselves from these big sinners. And they can't, they're so blind, they can't even see their own hypocrisy. That they can't keep the rules, but they think they can keep the rules. And these other people they view who can't keep the rules, they think are way outside of God's circle. And God is about to bring redemption. So Jesus did what he often does in verses 3 and 4. He tells a parable. So he starts, it says, and he told them this parable, basically his story. So Jesus is about to make a big point. So he's going to tell them a couple stories to do this. And so he wants to illustrate this crucial point that they're missing, and he uses the shepherd imagery. And this would have been very common imagery. People would have been used to walking through the countryside from town to town or house to house and seeing kind of shepherds out with their sheep. So this is a, this is a pretty familiar you know, story to, to them in that time, much more so than maybe it is to us. Um, I've never seen a shepherd with his sheep. Um, and I grew up in the country, so, you know, I've been around a lot of livestock, um, but sheep aren't that big in Texas, I guess. So, But this would have been familiar imagery for them. And so um, the, the, we get the idea of a shepherd who's got about 100 sheep, and one of them, he realizes he's counting, one of them's gone. And so the shepherd's got to go on a search for this sheep. Well, he doesn't have to, right? He could just say, oh, well, um, but... He loves the sheep, and he wants to rescue the sheep. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says, the shepherd here that leaves to go search for the sheep, this is not a half-hearted search, that he would have probably very likely had to go through a lot of valleys or gorges. He may have had to climb cliffs and rocks, that this would have been a rough search looking for the sheep to to try to find them because the sheep has wandered off enough that he's gone count, and he can't see the sheep anywhere, so he's going to have to leave the open country and go you know, wherever he's going to have to go, ravines or forests, to try to find this lost sheep. And so he's looking intensely for this sheep. And keep in mind, Jesus is telling this story about a shepherd chasing down his sheep, knowing that he's getting closer. At this point, he's, he's getting very close to enduring a horrible, gruesome death for their sins and for ours. So He knows what the cost is going to be to rescue his sheep. And so um, we get this imagery again of a shepherd on this rough journey going through valleys, gorges, cliffs to find a sheep. And he's about to suffer a gruesome, um, as an innocent man who's never committed any wrongdoing, suffer a gruesome death for our sake. And so we see that unlike, you get this stark contrast again 
the, the religious leaders were wanting to exclude people and do everything they could to try to put up boundaries about why you, that you couldn't be a follower of God. And then you have Jesus willing to go through anything, including sacrificing his own life and dying so that he could rescue and save his sheep. So you get this, this stark contrast of imagery. And so um, the, the, shepherd, the, the Pharisees were always quick, quick to exclude people. And you get Jesus in a time of Matthew, in Matthew 23, 13, he condemns the religious rulers. So he's having a similar kind of thing where um, he's trying to explain how the kingdom of heaven works, and they've got it completely backwards. So this is what he says. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisee, hypocrites, with an exclamation point. So he's, he's up in their grill. He's letting them know. He says, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, so you get this idea of one of the rudest things you can do, right? Somebody comes to your door, you slam the door in their face. That's, that's like shockingly rude, right? You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for neither you, for neither, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So there, he's saying not only did you miss the point, but you're pushing other people off the cliff of death. This, these, don't worry about the tax collectors and sinners. You're missing the point. And so Jesus has got pretty harsh words for these guys. And in verse 5 and 6, we hit the peak of the story. So the shepherd finds the sheep. And he responds to the sheep very differently than I think we might expect. He's been on this long journey. He's gone over some gruesome things. And he gets to the sheep. Now, a lot of people are animal lovers. I thought I was an animal lover until we got a dog. And I think I'm just, my life is happier without animals, okay? So you can condemn me. You can think I'm a bad person. If my dog got lost, I might throw a party. Not when we found the dog. Like once, oh, okay, dog's lost. Um, so, I mean, probably daily, weekly for sure, maybe daily, our dog is barking or doing something I don't like, and, I'm, and I yell, happy, quit being an idiot. Um, she hasn't gotten it yet. She doesn't understand when I'm upset that she's being an idiot. Um, so, but we don't get this imagery with Jesus, right? So thank, thankfully, uh, God is still working in my heart and bringing sanctification. We get the full picture of Jesus here. So he comes and he finds this sheep, okay? And he rejoices over the sheep because he loves the sheep. Now keep in mind, sheep, animals in general, livestock in general that are outside and together all the time, they're pretty gross and nasty and stinky. So they may look cute on commercials, the Chick-fil-A cows, whatever. And Evie, my youngest daughter, has this little lammy of all of her stuffies. Lammy is her favorite. We're actually on lammy four because one lammy, one lammy got thrown up on. One lammy, I think, finally started to unravel. I don't, one lammy got chalk all over it that we couldn't get out. So we're on lammy four. But she loves this lammy, and it's a, it's a lamb head that's really soft and then a blanket. It's one of those uh, maybe gunned. I forget what they're called. Anyway, so it's a, you know, it's, they, they can hold the face, the face on the face and then rub the blanket, right? So it's really comforting. When it comes out of the dryer, it's kind of soft and it smells good. This is not the sheep that Jesus is finding. They, I mean, he's had, you know, the shepherds had to go on this kind of long, nasty journey. There might be brambles stuck in the wool. The sheep, I'm sure, stinks. And what does he do when he finds the sheep? Does he yell at the sheep? Does he say, stop being an idiot? No, thankfully he doesn't. He, does, he, he picks the sheep up. He doesn't unload his frustration and anger. He picks the sheep up. He's so relieved. He's so joyous. He puts the sheep over his head, okay? So the, the, back, the belly of the sheep is right on his neck, and he's holding 
like the back legs and the front legs, like this. So this is a really, I would never want to carry a sheep this way, where it's all of its underbelly is right on my head, right? And so now he has this sheep, and he's happy. He's rejoicing that he's found his lost sheep. He puts him on his shoulders. And so he, now keep in mind, he's been on this long journey. He's probably tired, and he has to backtrack. Whatever he's done, he has to go back the same way. So just to go back through this long journey again, now carrying the sheep, and he's already tired, but he doesn't care. He rejoices. He loves the sheep so much that he's happy to have it back. And um, so the, uh, when he gets back, in fact, it says, um, picking up in verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So what we're meant to see here is there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing, once God, when he chases us down and he rescues us, there's nothing that we can do to separate us from him. So I don't know where you are, but there's no gorge that's too deep. There's no forest that's too dark. God will chase you down. He will rescue you. He will not stand and condemn you. In fact, the only people that we see Jesus condemning are the ones who, in their pride, refuse to call out for salvation. All of those who call to him, regardless, we see those in Scripture who are prostitutes, those who are greedy and swindlers. We see all kinds of people coming to Jesus, and when they call out to him and they repent, he is always merciful to them. He always picks them up and puts them on his shoulders and takes them and rejoices and throws a party at having a new son or daughter in his kingdom. And so he's always gracious and offers salvation to those that are helpless, wayward, and lost, which is all of us. And in verse 7, this is where the rebuke comes. So he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And you should read that righteous person as self-righteous. So the religious leaders were self-righteous. And religious leaders are always tempted towards self-righteousness. The, the Jewish leaders were here. They, were, they had taken the Mosaic law and they had exploded. They had created all of these other laws that go along with it and they expected everyone to keep all of those laws. They weren't worried about the insight of their hearts. They were focused on legalism. Right before the Reformation, the religious leaders were, were very legalistic, were very focused on um, what you had to do to approve, to be approved by God. And they were very quick to elevate themselves, exalt themselves to positions, to high positions, to heap condemnation on those who didn't fit what they felt like was right with the church. And so we see Jesus in um, chapter 14, as Sean, Pastor Sean preached a couple weeks ago, where Jesus is rebuking these religious leaders and saying, don't seek the highest seat at the banquet. When you read Luke 14, 7 through 11, He's rebuking them, saying, don't seek for yourself. His kingdom is completely inverted. It's flipped over. Those who please God are those who serve. And I think that's why we see Jesus and Paul so much in their teaching, so much in their instruction, warning leaders against being prideful and being that they need to be full of humility and serve faithfully those that are in their care. And so Luke 2 is another verse another part where we see Jesus kind of rebuking those, and he says, rebuking the religious leaders, and this is what he says, 
Luke 2.17. Those who are well or self-righteous have no need of a physician. Now they do, really, but they can't see it. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, the self-righteous, but sinners. Again, Jesus is condemning this self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They were sick and they didn't realize it. They thought they were healthy. They thought they had it all together. But they couldn't even hear Jesus' message. And their hearts were cold toward him. And in fact, not only were they cold toward him, they who they thought were seeking the heart of God missed the Son of God completely. So Jesus goes on and he tells them another story. And this is a story that would have been familiar to them, but he he gives it a a twist. He gives it an ending they're not expecting. So um, much like like an M. Night Shyamalan or an Alfred Hitchcock movie, you think it's going to go one direction and then you get an ending that you're totally surprised with. So we get in Luke 15 three different people. The first one we saw is the shepherd. He has 100 sheep. So he's he's a farmer or a small business owner. We'll see next week in the prodigal son, we get a man of very immense, extensive wealth, even complete with servants. So this guy has a lot of land, he has a lot of wealth, he has a lot of power. But here we get a picture of a poor woman. So in that day and time, um, if most of the time, if you were a woman and you didn't have a husband, uh, most of the people in general were poor. But if you were a woman and you didn't have a husband, you were probably especially poor because there were not a lot of avenues for you to work or make money. And so we get this picture of this poor woman. She has 10 silver coins. Now, their system of money is much different than our system of money now. So don't be tempted to think that 10 silver coins was a lot of money. If, if you kind of equate it to our uh, money, t- money system today, it was about 100 bucks each coin. So she has 10 coins. She has about $1,000 total. That's all of her wealth that she has. And she loses one. And so most of the time, if, if a, a woman like that had coins, they would have been kept in a bag that was a sack that she kind of wrapped up and maybe tied at the top, or they would have been on a string, almost like a necklace. So she's lost one, and it tells us that she has to light a lamp in verse 8, or what woman having 10 coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So the fact that she has to light a lamp also gives us an idea that she's poor, because most houses of poor people in that time, they, they were made out of dirt. And they had no windows or they had very small windows. So it was really dark even during the day, kind of like it is in here. It's dark all the time. And so um, with two small, tiny windows. And so she has, to, she has to light a lamp, right? They don't have electricity, so she has to light a lamp. She probably has a dirt floor. She's sweeping a dirt floor, and she's looking for this coin. This is, this is not a lot of wealth to, to most people, but it's a huge amount of wealth to her. And she's looking for it, and she's desperate to find it. And so Leon Morris in his commentary on this passage talks about how the rabbinic writings, the, the, the literature that the rabbis wrote and studied and used had a lot of this motif of somebody looking for a coin. But the way the stories always ended was if somebody will search very diligently for a coin, how much more should he keep the law? How much more should he search for the law? So you get this idea of, hey, whatever you're pouring your time and energy into, It's not as important as keeping the law. And Jesus completely flips the story on his head. So they probably think, okay, finally we know where he's going. We might be finding some common ground with this guy. And he comes in and he doesn't say, so use that same energy and seek the law. He says, how much more does God rejoice at finding somebody? 
So he says, just so. So she calls her friends and neighbors together when she's found the coin. And she says, rejoice with me, for I had found the coin that I lost. So she, again, this is all the wealth that she has. She's desperate because she thinks she's lost one out of her 10 coins. And she's so relieved when she finds it that she wants everybody to know and be able to rejoice with her. And so instead of, so Jesus gives them the shocking answer where he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So they're not expecting this at all. They're not expecting for her to find the coin and then throw a big party over finding the coin. In fact, that would go completely against any kind of story that they would write. But it shows the beauty of who God is and that he doesn't delight in our ability to try to work our way toward him and to try to earn his favor. David understood this. David, who was called a man after God's own heart, and he had an understanding of how God's heart worked and what he cared for. He tells us in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David's saying, if you come to God and you're broken and, and you know that you have no hope, he will not despise you. He will accept you. If you come and you try to show him your list of accomplishments, he's not impressed because he's perfect and you can never be perfect. And David understood this idea because you have to remember in Psalm 51, he's writing this after he's done the most horrible thing he's ever done in his life. He has slept with another man's wife. He's gotten her pregnant and then he had the man killed. So David is coming to God and pouring out his heart after committing adultery and murder. He knows there's no law. There's no penance. There's nothing that he can do to earn his way back into God's heart. And so he does the only thing he can do, the only thing any of us can do. He throws himself at God's feet. He confesses and he pleads for repentance and mercy because he knows that's how God accepts us, is by his finished work, not by what we can do for him. And so there are three takeaways that I want to hit on um, before we leave this passage, because I think there could be three things we could be tempted to misunderstand. The first one is, um, we could be tempted to think that only a few are going to be saved. Because in these three stories, you get one out of a hundred is rescued, one out of ten is found, and then the prodigal son, you get one out of two. So best case scenario, that's 50-50. One case scenario, it's one percent. So you could be tempted to think, man, most people are not going to find their way into heaven. But Charles Spurgeon, the great fiery preacher, believed that there will be many more in heaven than in hell, and he references a couple. I'm going to read this quote. He says, this is what he has to say about the ratio of people in heaven and hell. The Father's love is not only for a few, but for an exceeding great company, a great multitude which no man can number. So he's pulling from scripture. A great multitude which no man can number will be found in heaven. I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell. If anyone asks me why I think so, I answer, because Christ in everything is to have preeminence, which I cannot conceive. How could he have preeminence if there are to be more in the dominions of Satan than in paradise? Moreover, I have never read that there will be, that there is to be in hell a great multitude which no man can number. And so we should remember that God is using, Jesus is using these parables to highlight the extent that God will go to to save one sinner, but there are hundreds of millions 
of pre-Christians in the world that God wants to reach with the gospel. And by his grace and his beauty, he wants to use us as a part of that. So we should take these stories and be very encouraged. Not that maybe a few will find Christ, but that God will do whatever he has to do to chase down and rescue sinners, and it will be multitudes. There will be multitudes in heaven. So the second point is that we don't need to become legalists. The longer you're a believer, the longer you're in church, the easier it is to create your own set of rules to keep, to think that you are being holy and pursuing God and to judge others by that grid. And so God has some very strong warnings for us. I want to read one from the Old Testament, one from the New. God says in Ezekiel 34, 11 through 13a, we get shepherd motif again. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of thick clouds, on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 reminds us, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, this is the Son of God, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, Christ's body, prepared for you, prepared, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offering you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So God is telling us, he's making it clear. He does not accept us based on anything we have ever done or ever could do. It is done on his work seeking us and on the body of Christ, the one-time sin offering that he made for all of us. And so we should not add to the gospel or take away from the gospel, and we should not become legalists. Yes, there will be times that we need to rebuke people or exhort people because they are trapped in sin, but we, we probably need to have a lot more focus on making sure that we're not beating people over the head with legalism because it's a big temptation and it always has been for church leaders. And the last thing I want to make sure that we leave with is that God's invitation is open to all people here. So again, we got three different we got people on three different ends of the, of the socioeconomic spectrum. We got poor, middle class, and rich when we get to the prodigal son. That all, God rescues them all. We get both male and female. And God wants to remind us that all people will have a representation on, in his throne praising him. And so it doesn't matter what your you know, background was, who your parents were, what level of education that you have, what your nationality is. Uh, what you know, ethnicity you are, what country that you were born in. God is going to rescue all. He's going to seek and save representatives from all people. And so there is nothing, again, that you could ever do that's beyond his reach. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, the only people he does not save are those who refuse to call on him. So if God is responding, if he is drawing to you, and if you have never responded to him, and call to Jesus, and he will save you today. If you are a believer, and you feel like you there's distance between you and God, or you've grown numb, call to him. He will pull you back. You're his son. You're his daughter. He will hold you in his bosom, and he will carry you.
back and he will restore fellowship. 